Morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, as Tazor mentioned, my name is Young, pastor here at New Life. Um, I, I don't think I've gotten to know every one of you guys, but it is great to be with you. Jake, you're all uh, lonely on the one side. <laughs> Usually I kind of like tilt my head around, but I'm going to be looking, <laughs> I'm specifically looking at you, Jake, or maybe Jenny behind you if I look on that side. Um, as you can see, we're missing a portion of our congregation this morning. Uh, there's quite a lot of people at Refine. Uh, if you haven't heard, Refine is our camp for first, second, and third year uni students. And so uh, many blessings to them as they have their final day of worship, and then they head back uh, sometime this morning. Um, there's a bunch of mentors who have given their time and their money to be a part of Refine, and then there's obviously the first, second, and third years as well. Um, so I do pray for them uh, and for the service this morning. Um, just out of curiosity, I'm kind of looking around. How many people are above 30 in here right now? Like, if you just want to raise your hands. Yeah? Yeah, with people at Refine, we're, uh, we're hitting a higher median age than usual, which is nice to see. You, know, you guys are my people, so you know, I'm just glad to see that. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll get straight into it. Uh, Father, thank you that your love is for all of us. Uh, whether we're in first year uni or whether we're uh, entering into our 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, wherever we might be, God, your love is steady and your love is for us and it never changes. Um, as we sang today, Lord, we wanna trust you. We wanna trust you with our entire lives. And in trusting you, Lord, uh, we wanna say to our own hearts that that means trusting everything about you, including uh, what you withhold from us and what you keep for later on and what you have planned for us, God. When we think about a sense of your timing, uh, that is what we want to do, trust in you, God. Uh, we do wanna pray for all of us that are gathered uh, to listen, whether here in person or online. Uh, we pray that you would open up our ears, that we might be able to hear you, that you would truly help us uh, to know who you are and to love you, uh, to see you for who you are and for the love that you have for us. And we pray for all those that are at Refine now. Uh, we pray, Lord, that they would have an amazing time of worship this morning, uh, that lives will be changed, that you would be the one doing the salvation work there, just as you are doing here, God. Uh, we trust in you for all the work that you're doing all around the world, and uh, we ask, Lord, that you would be with us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. When we uh, last left Sunday service, uh, we had our final sermon from our series, A Better Life is Waiting. And so that was last week. We had the parable of the four types of soil uh, that we talked about and that had just been explained and it, you know, as it pertains to our focus area of church planting. You'll remember uh, the parable showed that even through the very human obstacles of hard hearts, of uh, competing loves in our hearts as well, and just plain failure, at the end of the day, the kingdom will produce a harvest. And this next parable that we have in our reading today that we uh, heard from Tazor, it follows on immediately from that previous one, uh, from that previous parable that Jesus taught. And it also answers the question of whether or not the crop uh, should be separated immediately from the weeds that are growing up alongside it. Now, we are starting a new four-week sermon series, as you can see from the sermon graphic uh, that's on the screen, called Kairos. 
And so this might be a word that's not super familiar to you uh, if you're not into the Greek language um, or if you're not into Korean dramas maybe. I think there was a Korean drama called Kairos. I was looking for images of Kairos and that's all that kept popping up. Uh, this week, we're doing a word study on that Greek word in the title, Kairos. Um, variously translated as time, as opportunity, uh, the right moment or season. And this will serve as the groundwork for the rest of our series as well. So in the following three weeks, uh, in the next three weeks, we'll be looking at the timing of our three focus areas uh, that we explored at the end of A Better Life is Waiting. So the things of discipleship, of families, and of church planting. So the timing behind those things. Now keep in mind for today, uh, I don't think we've done this before uh, at New Life, but we're doing a word study. We're doing a word study. So as we examine the parable, the language that Jesus uses here is very important. You know, it always is, but look closely today. Uh, the words that are used specifically in the Bible are always important because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet more so today, as we do a word study into a specific word, so pay very close attention to the language used. Uh, I'll guide us through that. So let's look at the way that Jesus presents the kingdom of heaven. Uh, read with me in chapter 13 there. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So what is the kingdom of heaven like? Now it's easy to misunderstand this with a cursory reading. If you're just reading through this uh, very quickly, it might feel like Jesus is saying, well the kingdom of heaven is like a man. Okay, it's not saying this, it's like saying the situation of a man who sowed good seed in his field, that's what the kingdom of heaven's like. It's not like the man himself, but it's like the situation of the man sowing the seed. Now we are gonna get a little bit more grammatical here, okay, I know we all love grammar, so the translation that we have here tells us that Jesus states that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, okay, that's what it says in our CSB, right? Not is like, okay, so, in the original Greek that this was written though, okay, what the word that's used there means is we could translate this as the kingdom of heaven has become like this. Now if you're not into grammar at all, okay, I've made a concession, okay? Uh, maybe you think that being into grammar is just a weird phrase even, and so you, know, you might be wondering, what's the big deal about has become like? Has become like indicates to us that something has already happened. It's in the past. This is what the kingdom of heaven has become like. But what do we know about the kingdom of heaven? Now we talked about this a couple of times last year, so if you've been with us for a little while, you, you might know this already. As we examine Revelation and the New Jerusalem, remember, the kingdom of heaven in its entirety is yet to come. We've talked about this. We've talked about how we're longing to go home. We're longing to be in the new Jerusalem. It's not here with us yet, do you remember? We know, even from our reading of this parable today, that there's a future time when something is certain to happen. It's a future time. Why is this important? So the linguistic difference is important because the timing of the kingdom of heaven is at stake here. The timing of the kingdom of heaven is what's presented by Jesus this morning. There's important distinctions between phrases like the kingdom is here or the kingdom will come or if you say the kingdom has come already. 
you notice there's differences, right? Just as there are distinct differences, let's say that you go out to lunch with someone. They're sitting across from you, they're sharing your plate of chips, and there's very important differences if they say, I have COVID, or if they say, I had COVID. Very, very important grammatical differences. But with the kingdom of heaven, there's this further complexity of the already and not yet aspects of this kingdom, the kingdom's fullness. So there's the arrival of the kingdom, and then there's the consummation or the fullness of the kingdom. It's the past, present, and future aspects of time as we understand it. All this to say, Jesus tells his listeners in this parable both that the kingdom has come already in the past, and yet, the absolute arrival of the kingdom is still yet to come. If you think about the historical religious context of the day, it's really interesting because in Judaism, you know, with the Jewish people that Jesus is speaking to, the concept of waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, it's normal. They've been waiting for this Messiah for hundreds of years, thousands of years, for all of their history. They've been waiting for someone to come and deliver them. They were used to delays when it pertains to the arrival of the Messiah. But then to hear Jesus say both that the kingdom has arrived, which means that the Messiah is in your midst in this moment, and yet that there's an unexpected delay. This was something new to them indeed. All right, enough conceptual, you know, we're talking about grammar, some of your eyes are glazing over. Let's talk evidence about the kingdom's timeline. The world around us provides us with plenty of evidence that backs up what Jesus is saying here when it comes to the timing. We know that the kingdom has already come. How do we know this? Because Jesus was born, he died, he resurrected. We enjoy the fruits of this. We're sinners saved by the grace of God through the Son of God's work. We wouldn't be here currently talking about these things if this weren't true. While we're currently experiencing the kingdom of heaven in this peak into the future, okay, as you know, we experience community life in church, this is a peak into the future of the New Jerusalem. We also experience this in the invitation from God to dispense grace upon the world. We've been given license to be gracious to the rest of this world. Then because of this, we see salvation in our midst. We see salvation in our family members, in our friends, in our neighbors. But it must be said that this world is not quite the new Jerusalem that we're awaiting. You know what I mean here? There's still pain in this world. There's still suffering that we try to make sense of as we get through this life and there's still enemies of the kingdom who seek to kill, steal, steal, and destroy. In the parable, the enemy of the sower comes, sowing weeds among the wheat. These weeds are most likely bearded darnel. You, you can see that on the screen there. You might have seen it translated as tares in your Bible, if you've seen that before, that word tares. Botanically speaking, I don't know if we have any botanists uh, at New Life. If you're looking at these two things, are you able to tell the difference just on sight? Because I really struggle. You know, I'm looking at it, you can probably mix it up, and I'd be like, oh, well, one of them's probably wheat. I'm not too sure, okay? These are botanically very close, okay? These bearded darnel are close to wheat, 
um, when they're not yet fully mature. You know, you're probably thinking of wheat as that brown stuff that kind of grows. It's on cereal packets everywhere, right? Um, when they're not fully mature, they look similar enough that they're pretty difficult to tell apart. And the enemy of the sower has sabotaged pretty well. Because of how closely the seeds are sown together, the roots entangle together between the wheat and the weeds. As they mature, the heads of the wheat and the weeds look different enough that the servants can tell something's not quite right. They even ask the owner incredulously, didn't you plant good seeds? Like this, this feels like a really funny question. The more that I read the parable, like who says to the owner, I thought you planted good seeds. You know, it seems very sarcastic to me. Now this paints a pretty good picture of today's church, doesn't it? The weeds growing among the wheat, but this isn't our focus for today. The landowner forbids the servants from trying to separate the weeds out from the wheat, not forever, but until the time of the harvest. He says, wait until the time of the harvest. Read with him, Matthew 13, 29 to 30. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. Only then, when the workers are gathering the wheat for the harvest, gathering the weeds, that's when the weeds will be gathered up first and then burned. So what does the harvest represent here? Harvest is commonly used throughout the Bible to represent the final judgment time, when both the wheat and the weeds will come to maturation, they'll come to the final harvest, and they'll face judgment. It's at this time that the weeds and the wheat will be separated. It's at this time that we will face separation, and those that believe in Jesus Christ will stand before the judge with Jesus and his righteousness upon us. Now let's talk about time. When you think about time, what do you imagine? Do you ever think about the passage of time? How do you paint a picture of time in your head? Broadly speaking, for the people of the Bible, uh, time is thought of by many throughout this period as primarily a context for specific events. Okay, it, not like an object, it's not like a fourth dimension that sometimes we talk about or an abstract concept. You know, when we think about time, we think in those kinds of terms. So for the Bible, we find this in God's saving acts and the responses of hum humanity to these acts. This is what makes up the bulk of time. And of course, the greatest of these we find in Jesus' coming to this earth, his birth, death, and resurrection, and the opportunity for humanity to respond to these things, time. I've got a quote from you from uh, Antti Jacqueline. She is a Swedish archbishop. She says, time can be thought of as the space and visual form for historical action of God and the time-structuring response of the believer. This definition made my head spin a little bit. Okay, I read through this many, many times throughout the week, so try to visualize this with me. Time is the backdrop. It's the canvas, similar to what you see on the screen there, the canvas that can be painted upon. So it's the space or the things that we can see where God's invisible actions 
suddenly become visible. Thus, the way that the believer responds helps us to make sense of the flow of time. And the amazing thing is, we join in with God in the formation of time because we can conceptualize it and we affect it through the way that we respond to what he does. Maybe that's still hard to understand. You know, think about it throughout the week. I'm still trying to get my head around it, right? When we talk about time in the New Testament, it comes from two different Greek words, okay? So one of them is the one that you saw on screen earlier. The other one is chronos, okay? It's a word that might be familiar to you because that's where we get the word chronology from. It's the word that we get uh, chronograph from, you know, the thing that's on your wrist. And then there's kairos, which is what we're focusing on throughout the series. Now, there is a bit of overlap between the two words as they're used throughout the Bible, and so you don't have to differentiate them too much. But with many other words that uh, define a particular concept, this is why you know, they're both translated as time quite often throughout the Bible. However, kairos, it's the name of our series, so you know that it's important, right? This is usually qualitative. Okay, which means that it's not just time that it's talking about, but an appointed time, a specific time that God has chosen. Quite often, Kairos is used to refer to the coming of Christ again and of the kingdom of heaven. So throughout the Gospels, when they say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near, this is the Greek word that's used, Kairos. Now because of this, because it's talking about an appointed time, sometimes we translate kairos as a season that we're in, or an appointed time, like we talked about, or even an opportunity. Whatever the case, it is something that is specifically ordained by God. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, then already you believe in kairos, or the appointed time. In archery, this is a bit more modern, kairos is the exact moment when an arrow has been drawn back far enough in the bow by the archer and there's enough tension. And so kairos is the moment when the arrow can be fired with enough force to penetrate the target. The exact moment when the arrow is drawn back far enough. I found out this week that archery is not part of the Winter Olympics. So I'm not very much into the Winter Olympics, unfortunately. In our case, our kairos is the appointed time for God's plan and purpose to be carried out. It might be, more generally speaking, a particular moment when a very important decision is made. Maybe you trace back your Christian journey to a particular time, a particular moment when you said, yes, this is it. I give up everything else, I'm following Jesus. That is kairos. It might be a season of life that we enter into where things change drastically. Whatever the case, the expected response on our part is to be ready for this time. Not to become ready as soon as that time happens, but to be ready and to stay ready. If we were archers, then the time before that appointed time is just as important because it would be preparation time. We might be putting together or crafting our bow and arrows. We might be practicing our shots before finally we take aim, we draw back the bowstring, and we fire as the appointed time comes. 
Now, in our parable today, Kairos then is talking about the harvest, Kairos, the time and the season of the final judgment. And so Jesus in this parable gives a clear explanation for why the kingdom of heaven is here. And yet opposition to it still exists, evil still exists, things that are anti-kingdom still exist, and this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about Kairos. Now perhaps this has bothered us in the past when we think about the kingdom of heaven being here and yet there's still evil in this world. We might have searched for the right words to explain to ourselves, our friends, our family about why evil persists in this world. And this is it. Second Peter 3 also tells us, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. We're reminded of this passage when we think about the final harvest, in Second Peter, uh, we looked at this in our series last year, The Unbearable Darkness of Doubt, last March. This is what's going to happen. The wiping out of all opposition against the kingdom awaits the harvest kairos, what Jesus is talking about there, when the weeds will be burnt. So the parable causes his listeners to anticipate, to look forward to this time. We know that a time is coming. We know what to expect from that time. But the parable not only causes us to anticipate, it also causes us to act. Because we know that the time is coming, and because we know what to expect from that time, we want to act. We want for our friends and family to be saved. We know that God's patience and love has afforded us kairos, the opportunity to share the gospel with our unbelieving friends, family, and neighbors. And in God's kairos, in his time, we believe and we trust that they will be saved. That's kairos. As we've heard throughout our our first series of the year, A Better Life is Waiting, we're joining in with what God has already begun at New Life and at Sesson. He's already begun it, and so that too is kairos. We've come in at the right time for culture to shift at New Life. If you're joining us brand new at New Life, or if you've been with us for a long time, this is the right time for you to be here. He's already begun it. His saving acts are on display here at New Life, and he's doing something new through the building of the culture of grace renewal. Broadly speaking, it's gonna be manifested in those three focus areas, discipleship, families, church planting. And so when it comes to these three focus areas, we have a vision for what we're hoping to see here at New Life, a vision that will continue to gain more and more clarity and momentum as time goes by, a vision that we expect God will accomplish in our midst in his appointed time. Hopefully this example crystallizes a little bit more for you guys. Many years ago, Bora and I got married. In this engagement period, we spent a lot of time preparing for this wedding day, preparing for marriage. Bora spent it 
you know, you guys who are engaged know this, usually the bride wants to look very beautiful on the wedding day, and so she spent it, you know, I don't know what she did, dieting, you know, preparing, thinking about photos. I spent it meeting up with lots of people, eating too much. My pants didn't fit properly on the day. That was a panic moment for me. But even in the time before Bora and I met, there was preparation being done in our hearts in that preparation period. God was working us towards that day, changing us from the inside, emptying us of what's not good, forming us into the characters that we would be in our marriage. You don't just become a good husband or a wife just because you get married. There needs to be preparation. All of us ought to be headed in that direction, and we have the wedding invitation from God to join with him in the building up, the beautifying of the bride of Christ, our church new life. Galatians 6.10 reads, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Over the next month, as we talk through the timing of the vision here at New Life, here's what you can do to prepare. First, you can anticipate, because God has an appointed time for everything that we are talking about. Second, you can act. As we're in the preparation stages, now is a time to prepare your hearts. Now is a time to get used to being hospitable to one another, opening up your homes, opening up your, your arms, and opening up your invitations to people that you might not have done in the past. And above all, Pray. As you prepare, pray. Because this is the thing that will ready your hearts the most. And with that in mind, how about I pray for us? Father, as we think about the appointed time and the season that we're living through here at New Life, this season, when you've already begun this work, of a cultural revival, of building a new culture here, one that focuses around a rejuvenation, a renewal of grace in our hearts. We want to say that we trust in you for this. For those of us who are longtime Christians that have felt the dryness of our hearts, the dryness of our faith, help us to turn now to you and say, we trust in your plan. Even if we don't know what it is, we trust in your hand as it moves in our lives. And we know, Lord, that you have an appointed season for us. Your season doesn't include leaving us alone, for you promise us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Perhaps in these times you know that we ourselves would draw a distance between ourselves and you. In these times, would you help us by opening up our eyes by helping us to return to you in faith, by helping us, Lord, to receive this renewal of grace that we might be flooded in our hearts by your love, your love that renews us, your love that helps us to seek you once again. For those of us that are either new Christians or have never done this Christianity thing before, would you help us to see that you are God above it all, 
that you are the God who makes sense of this senseless universe. When there's pain, when there's suffering in our lives that threatens us by being absurd, by making our lives feel senseless and meaningless, would you remind us, Lord, that you're the only one who is the answer? You yourself have no reason to utter an answer before us because you are the answer. And so we turn to you and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to give our hearts over completely to you, that we might trust in you fully. And Father, for our church, New Life, we want to say that we trust in you. New Life has been through some hard times and has gone through some hard battles, but here we still stand, all because of your grace. We know, Lord, that you don't do these things just to leave us destitute and shameful, but we know, Lord, that those who utter your name will never be put to shame. And so we call upon your name here today, and we say that we trust in your timing for all the different areas that you manifest in, whether it's in discipleship, whether it's in the families that we have here at church, whether it's in church planting. Wherever our hearts stand, help us, Lord, to trust in you. We believe in you, we love you, we seek you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.